Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. I am so glad you joined us today. I love just the, the title of this session. It's everything you always wanted to know about English language learners, but we're afraid to ask. Imagine what it would be like to take a physics class or a math class or a chemistry class in something other than your primary language. Imagine going to lunch and not being able to understand all the conversations that are swirling around you. What is it like to be in those kids' shoes? How can we best support our English language learners academically and socially? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And boy, do we have the perfect expert and author to help us today. Her name is Beth Skelton. Hey, Beth, how are you? Hi, Susie. I'm great. It's wonderful to be on the show. Thanks for the invite. I'm so glad that you are here. And just so you know, Beth drove 30 minutes to get a really solid internet connection today. So we really appreciate Beth doing all this. Let me tell you just a little bit. Beth's background is so fascinating. She actually began her career in education as a high school German teacher. My daughter's a French teacher, so that's right up her alley. Uh, Support schools all around the globe in creating successful English language learner programs She facilitates professional development education. Uh, She uh, facilitates professional education development in Belgium, China, Switzerland, Germany, 14 different countries. It's amazing work that Beth does. So I want to start right away with uh, just to find out a little bit from you, Beth, where did you get this passion for English language learners? Well, that's a fun question. Um, I, I guess learning language itself became a passion when I became a language learner. I was just 14 the first time that I went abroad to Germany, and I had very, very little German at all, and realized the power that language has in our lives. And up until the time where you're really immersed in, in another language or another culture, you kind of take it for granted that you can communicate and get your needs met. And then when you can't, it suddenly opens a new world. And so I went into first teaching German, as you said, and about three years into that, I got my master's degree in English as a second language. And that opened the world to me. And not just the languages, but also cultures and the students that were dependent on language for their survival and their success in the United States. And that really grabbed me. And um, as I tell some people, those were the kids that I took home in my heart every night. And um, since 1992, that's been my focus. You know, what you just said really hit me about what it would be like to not be able to communicate to get your needs met. You know, I just, I never even thought of it that way of what that would be like. And of course we're talking about school, but that could be at the store. That could be, you know, at the movie theater. Let's talk a little bit about the processes of English language learners. So when school starts, they come into our school, what kind of support do schools typically give sort of the stages of support? How long are they normally English language learners? There's a whole lot I don't know about your world. Take us through a little bit of what their paths are like. Yeah, this is dependent in the United States on, on where they come in. There's some changes, but generally 
the parents will fill out a form that indicates that they speak a language other than English at home. And that sets off a chain of events. And the first is that there's an assessment. And again, depending on the state that you're in, um, that assessment changes. But it gives the teachers an idea of their um, approximate level of language acquisition at the time for that student. And then they're placed into a program of some kind to support their language development at that stage. So there's generally considered about five stages of language acquisition. Um, stage one being where the student really is not producing a lot of language at all. We would call that pre-production um, or an entering level. Again, depending on the state of uh, the state where you are, you have different names um, for those stages. And that stage is a very short, actually, in the big picture of things. Kids can move from not saying anything and really very limited comprehension um, to, you know, where they're actually able to answer in, in short phrases and one word and understanding main ideas of what's going on within about six months if they've been given some really good instruction, tier one instruction. And that would include lots and lots of visuals. Um, so supporting their comprehension first, given the opportunity to use their native language at all, if at all possible, to um, help and support that comprehension. So that first stage, all about just comprehending. And if they get enough comprehensible input, we call it enough understanding in stage one, they move very quickly into stage two. And I liken stage two to a two-year-old. If you have your own children, you'll understand that two-year-olds, they often speak in phrases, um, short sentences. They get their meaning across with a lot of gestures and pointing, but also some, some, some words. And they're, and they're following the basic idea. So that second stage um, can last for that first year to maybe 18 months. And in that stage, we're really starting to support their um, oral language development still. They're building from single, single phrases or single sentences to linking sentences. We're supporting that kind of language development at that stage. And again, through lots of visuals, time to interact with a colleague, a partner, either native language or a supportive um, English speaker, only English speaker at the stage two. That moves us into kind of a stage three, where their, their speech is really emerging at this point and their comprehension is starting to increase. By the time kids hit stage three, a lot of teachers think, oh, they're fine because they can answer in a complete sentence. They do show general understanding. Even in content classes, they'll show, show some basic general understanding. They can answer short um, questions at um, the, in the content classroom. And so unfortunately, this stage three is where a lot of kids sort of stagnate. And it is sort of a plateau level in language acquisition anyway. But Often they plateau because we stop providing the support they need. And really this stage is all about developing complex language and complex um, skills, ability to access grade level text and um, manage writing with complex sentences and, and linking one idea to another. And so this phase fascinates me the most because we get kids there fairly quickly, but then they hang out. 
And then they move into kind of a stage four, which is sort of an intermediate fluency. Again, the names of this change, depending whether you're in a state that uses the WIDA standards or New York standards for English as a new language, or whether you're in California. So I'm using a generic sort of name for these stages. But by stage four, these kids are starting to um, make it at grade level with some additional language-focused supports. And this is really where it gets fine-tuned. They need the language of how to do compare and contrast or how to do a cause and effect. Those functional language forms are really, really important to have them move into native language fluency at kind of a stage five. So that's in general and sort of ideas of where we support them. We, we think a lot about those stage one, stage two kids because they are truly the beginner beginners, but that intermediate stage three and four are where we really need to focus in on the language um, supports in all content classes, because often those students aren't getting a lot of su specific support anymore. They may not even be pulled out. They may not even have an um, English, specific English language acquisition classroom anymore by the time they hit stage three. And those are the kids that I think all teachers are academic language teachers, um, that all teachers at this point really need to be on board to support um, language acquisition for those students. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the ELL teacher. Um, what is their role? And I know it's going to change, obviously. I can already tell that from, from what you just told us. Um, but so we understand, because I'm a reg ed teacher largely. So what's the role of the ELL teacher? Because some of us may think it's to teach this child English. Is that their role or what is their overall mission? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and again, every school is going to be different how they um, use their English language acquisition teacher or their English language development teacher. But the, clearly the ELD teacher, number one, they're, they're an ambassador. They're an advocate for those English language learners. And what that means is they need to make sure that you as a general education teacher understand what the needs are and how that you can support that student. And maybe that means they're working with you um, on a during a planning period to make sure that you have the, the supports you need to make your content comprehensible to that student. And I mean, some of those meetings happen in the copy room where the English language acquisition teacher sees a, a handout and says, hey, can I add some pictures to that? Can I add a graphic organizer to that writing assignment? Can I help you with that so that you're making your lesson and your assignments as um, language supported as possible for those English language learners um, in your class. So one role is clearly the advocate, the ambassador, the representative, the voice for those students who don't yet have the ability to be their own voice. So I think that is number one really important role for the English language acquisition teachers that throughout the staff, they make sure that everybody knows what the, the students' needs are at all the different levels um, or stages of language development. And then clearly they will have a role of direct instruction at some point. And that direct instruction could be in a co-teaching environment. A lot of schools are now um, seeing the research is pretty solid. Um, and Andrea Honigsfeld is a big one in this field of research with co-teaching. So an English language development teacher working hand in hand in the same classroom at the same time um, with a social studies, math, science, English language arts teacher, a fourth grade teacher, and they teach a class together focused on um, the language needs of those students. And that seems to be really, really effective if schools can afford to have that co-teaching model happen. Another uh, place that 
English language development teachers do direct instruction would be in their own classroom. And some schools have it so that the English language arts class is with the English language development teacher so that the English language learners are not in the grade level English class, the English language arts class. It's just really, really difficult to um, make some of the texts comprehensible to the kids and accessible at grade level, especially in the upper grade secondary. So they would have their own English language arts class. That happens in some places, not all the time. So those are two places where the English language arts, our English language development teacher can really be um, impactful. And then another is they often will um, do team meetings and support with the general education teacher. And that's all around planning. Said, let's look at your lesson plans. Let's see how can we build in language functions? How can we make sure there's a language lens on that content um, that you're going to deliver? And the English language development specialist in the school has the skills to help support um, content instruction across the board. So those give you some ideas of what I see when I'm out in the field working with English language development teachers. They have a lot of different roles. They wear a lot of different hats. Um, they're certainly keeping tabs on their students. They're um, doing a lot of formative language assessment, making sure students' language is growing. Um, yeah, I think does that give you kind of an idea of a few of those? You know, it does. And I'm and I'm 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 also uh, you know thinking through when I'm in buildings what I'm seeing and I'm I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm I want to read more about the co-teaching model in this area. Um, one thing that I wanted to make a note, like you're talking about how some of this happens in the copy room, but that's not enough, right? We we need to connect with each other more. That's the first thing I'm realizing talking to you because sometimes I'll be in a building and there's almost a disconnect. We're not sure what they're doing over here in this area and, and over here we're they're everybody's they're they're my kids too you know they're all of our kids right so I want to connect with that person more and see what I can do and that's something I want to talk about now is also um what, what are they going through in terms of if I stepped into their shoes what's happening with with social development and pulling them in and make helping all of our kids feel like they're a part of our school and have a sense of community in our school. So do you have any sort of ideas on that of how, how we can, how we can, I know it's kind of a crazy big question, but what are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's such a fun one. And, and you use two big words and one was the word all. And that word to me, encapsulate it. If you um, take the word all, A-L-L, and think that all of our students are academic language learners, then teachers suddenly see, oh, all of these strategies that I'm doing, um, this extra work, so to say, it, it's for all of our kids because no one is a native speaker of academic English. And so even the native English speaker who's born into a household with two parents who are PhDs still has to learn the academic language of social studies or the academic language of math. And so when we take that view, then truly they all become all of our kids. And the second big word that you used is the word community. How do we become a community of learners? And that includes the teachers. How do teachers come together to become a community of learners? Many, many schools have um, instituted professional learning communities or PLCs. And this is a place where the um, English language development specialist in the school can really shine. And that's through providing targeted professional development, um, supported lesson planning, talking about the kids as individuals. 
showing them um, what the WIDA consortium, that's a group for 40 states in the United States are part of the WIDA consortium. They have something called a can-do portrait. What can this student do? What are their skills? What are their assets? What do they bring to our school and our classroom? And when the, the English language development teacher can share that background, then all teachers see what an asset these students are to our community of learners. Um, there are so many ways that we can build community and connect to the students' background, their culture, all of their learning assets that they bring to us, whether it's hooking into parents coming into the schools and sharing their stories, um, the students bringing what um, they know from their past learning experiences, uh, their survival stories. The, <laughs> when you open it up to what they can share, Everybody benefits in the whole school. And I'm, I'm talking about way more than, of course, the Fs, you know, the fiestas and the um, folk heroes and all, uh, the, you know, the surface level culture. I'm really talking about what these kids bring to us from their experiences um, that they have that are beyond what any of the students in our own classrooms have. So if you're interested in, in learning a lot about just newcomers and, and their experiences, there's a fabulous book that I can recommend to everyone. It's called The Newcomers. It's written by Helen Thorpe, and she's a journalist uh, who spent a full year in a newcomer classroom at a public high school in Denver, Colorado. And this book is just taking off to give people an idea of um, what our students are bringing to the classroom and what they've gone through to get here and the work that they're doing to become successful in English. I'm, I'm just feeling inspired by you on this. And um, I, I want to talk a little bit about nuts and bolts here a little bit and see um, Okay, we have some new students coming in. Uh, here's a question that's that's a tough one, and you're not going to probably have one answer for this, and I can maybe opine a little bit too. But there's a question that I've been asked before. You know, we want a flexible group. We're flexible grouping every day based on what we're seeing. We're, our, our small groups change, and we're, we're making those decisions every day. So if I'm a general ed teacher, are there some guidelines? Should I group my English language learners together sometimes so that they can help each other? Or do I want to sort of go with my normal sort of flexible grouping patterns and decisions? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I sure do. And I first have to say I'm a huge fan of Spencer Kagan Cooperative Learning. And Kagan has done a lot of work with English language learners as well. And I'm going to use some of the strategies that he would suggest and as well as my background and experience on this. So first of all, you're going to look at what is my task. So what is it that I want students to do in that um, flexible group? So if it's about um, the content and I know that my English language learners are capable in math, for example, then I would use the same like math strategies. I would make sure that they were in a group that could support their math level and they may have somebody else in that group who speaks their native language to support the language development. But I want their content ability to be able to shine and give enough language support that they can um, demonstrate their language or their content knowledge. There are times, however, where because of the text, for example, 
is too um, difficult to access, that I'm going to actually have a modified text or an accommodated text. So it might be reduced in amount or complexity. It's the same content, but I've maybe put it through um, the program called textcompactor.com, or I've used a leveled text from something like um, News Ella. Uh, newsela.com, and I've used a different level of the same text. At any rate, I could give a group of English language learners who have level two, three, and four, maybe mixed levels of English language learners, they might be in the same flexible group with a, um, accommodated or a, a modified text of some kind. So that would be also an appropriate way of putting all English language learners together for one assignment or one task. But at other times, I want them definitely mixed. So here's another um, idea that I've developed. If teams are sitting in groups of four, let's say, and I have shoulder buddies, so kids sitting next to each other, and face buddies, those are the ones sitting across. If I have the ability to have two um, Spanish speakers sitting next to each other, they would be shoulder buddies. And then across from them are two native English speakers who only speak English. So in my classroom, I can decide this is a content processing question. I just want the kids to have time to really think about, do I understand the content? I'm going to have them talk to their shoulder buddy. What that says without saying it is you can speak Spanish. You can speak Korean. You can speak Vietnamese now. Okay, you can speak Urdu. So you're I'm giving them permission because I've partnered them with someone who speaks their native language, if at all possible. So that's the shoulder buddy. But if I say I'd like you to practice this now with your face partner, what I've really said is you're going to go to English because my face partner can't speak Spanish. My face partner can't speak my native language. Now, if I'm going to do that, I also have to think what language support do I need to have in place? So I might have a sentence frame on the board or I might have students be looking at a word bank um, that has some visuals with it. So they have the vocabulary and they have the sentence structure they need to explain and practice whatever it is I'm having them practice with their face partner. So I like that shoulder partner, face partner. It just makes teachers really conscious. Right now, it's just processing the content. Go to your native language. That's okay. It's only a 30 seconds to a minute interaction. Face partner, you're going to practice with your um, English, but I'm going to give you the support you need to practice in English. So a couple of different grouping ideas as we flexibly group our students. And yes, we're going to mix it up. Um, throughout the time, depending on the focus of the lesson. Those are fantastic ideas. I love those. And um, one thing I was thinking about, too, is, and, and this has been asked before, if we're walking, and maybe you can help us a little bit on this, I'm walking through the lunchroom, and I hear some of my English language learners, and it sounds like they're speaking pretty good English at lunch or in the halls, and now I'm, I'm kind of bringing that expectation into the classroom. And when I'm asking them to do a written assignment, things may not go like I thought they would. Help us out on that a little bit. Is that a, sort of a normal progression of learning where the speaking comes first and then the writing? Or am I off on that? No. In general, I would say yes. But there are students who um, 
have native language literacy skills that are quite high when they come to us. And sometimes those students' literacy skills actually develop sooner than their speaking and listening skills. Um, so I worked with a lovely Korean girl um, when I was teaching in Germany at an um, international school. And she was so literate in Korean and in English. She could read novels, but in classroom, she could hardly get out um, a phrase. And the teachers were convinced she was a beginner. But when they saw her writing, it was much higher. So she would be the exception to the traditional student in the United States, where generally their speaking and listening develop first, and then um, their writing. But really what you're hitting on is something that uh, a lot of people talk about is the difference between social language and academic language. So what you're hearing in the lunchroom is a student's ability to interact socially with their friends. And that generally um, comes Sooner. Again, there are exceptions to the rule, but generally students develop that social language first. And yes, we can hear them and they sound quite fluent. And then it's time to write the social studies cause and effect paragraph or report. And we wonder why it is disjointed and there aren't complete sentences. And we know that they can express themselves clearly. So this is really that stage three and four that I mentioned earlier and um, and why I'm so concerned because teachers think, oh, they're fine. I heard them in the cafeteria and now I, I don't know what to do with them. And that's where I think the biggest need for support comes. How do we support them with academic language beyond the vocabulary level? How do we help them write complex sentences? Are we supporting that with sentence frames and practice with the, the structures and the grammar necessary? Are we giving them mentor texts for what a cause and effect paper looks like or a compare contra contrast? Do they know the language of explanation necessary for that math explanation? So that's really the support, the language support necessary. And when teachers see that Almost all of their kids need the same support. Again, that academic language support. Um, it really shifts how they look at their own lessons. They, they start to plan with the language lens. What language are my students going to need to use? And do they have that language? So how can I support it? And they see that language supports for all kids work for all kids and are really supportive. Well, that's really illuminating. And I'm always taken back to how difficult it is for all of us to learn new vocabulary, particularly new math vocabulary, social studies vocabulary, chemistry vocabulary, how much is coming at all kids every day, every class period. And then when you layer on top of that, the challenges these kids are facing in the classroom, it's, it's really quite a lot to take in. Um, if, uh, and as, as I mentioned, most of my life spent as a gen ed teacher. If, what would you say are the biggest misconceptions and I know this is a big generalized statement I'm asking. What are the biggest misconceptions you see that we have about this particular group of students? Um, I think one of them is, is that they are one group of students and they are as diverse as any other group of students. You have newcomers who are refugees and have limited and interrupted formal education you have students who have been highly educated in their native um, country and um, have more content comprehension and understanding than our students in the classroom. They just don't have the language to express it. 
Um, you have students who have maybe traumatic background experiences, students who have two highly educated parents um, who are just spending the year here because parents are working at a university. We have such diversity in these students. And, and so treating each of them as individuals with individual language and social emotional needs is really, really important is that we don't just look at them as a group of English learners, um, but as individual students um, who each need a specialized path of support and um, care. That is a really powerful statement you're making. Beth, What I forgot to ask you this. What is your website? How do people find you? I am at BethSkelton.com. That's B-E-T-H-S-K-E-L-T-O-N.com. And I'm also on Twitter at E-A Skelton. Okay, great. Guys, we're going to put that up on the notes uh, for the podcast today. And any, any other things that we can do, link to her website, bio, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm listening to this podcast. I'm driving into work. I'm getting all motivated to change the world. What are a couple of things that you could give to educators, just a couple, in, in supporting our English language learners? Two big ones. One big one, get to know your students. And if you can't do that individually because you're teaching high school and you've got 180 kids coming in, talk to the English language development teacher and find out as much as you can about that student. So know your students, their backgrounds, their skills, their abilities, their assets, what are they bringing to your class, and then tap into that. And then the second would be do everything possible to make your class comprehensible. So I sometimes say, if I put you on mute, if I put the teacher on mute, could I follow the main ideas of class? And if not, what can I do to make sure that at least that much is comprehensible? If you could see me now, I've got my hands going, I have gestures, I, I you know, the visuals behind me. Um, so what can I do to make sure that students are at least comprehending my lesson? So those are two biggies. Know your students and then do everything possible to make it comprehensible. I love that. And I'm going to tell, I'm going to kind of share some of my takeaways and I have probably six, so I need to narrow them down. And then if you'll add maybe your parting thoughts for educators who are listening to this today, you know, I learned a lot from those stages. I, I didn't know a lot of that. I, I learned a lot about the role of the ELL teacher was what we call them here. I guess they're called different things in different places to tap in, you know, like there are kids, let's find out their strengths. Let's find out more about them. Let's get to know our kids. I love your strategies on flex flexible grouping, the shoulder buddies, the face bu buddies. And I'm going to take that forward in my training about my flexible grouping, that there are days, depending on the task, that I'm going to group them one way, and there are other days that I'm going to group them differently. And I think that's those are, those are just some stellar guidelines there, Beth, that we can all use in our classes tomorrow. Uh, tell us, what are a couple takeaways, if I didn't already steal them all from you, <laughs> tell us a couple takeaways you'd like to uh, emphasize. Um, I'd love that if everybody could see that these are all our kids and they're our kids and one teacher in the school can't fix quote unquote anybody. So it is a team and a community effort. And when we see it as a community, I think everyone wins. 
Well, that is a wonderful way to close. And I never want to finish a podcast without thanking every educator out there. Beth and I want to thank you for all the wonderful work you do with your kids every day, for opening doors for your kids, creating possibilities for your kids. You're the most important thing in the world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Beth. Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk a little bit about English language learners. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our author's work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.